You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. My name is Ben. I am also uh, a pastor here at King's Church. It is good to see all of you. Uh, It's uh, uh, not Pentecost Sunday, but we do find ourselves in uh, Acts chapter 2, which is the famous chapter on the miracle of Pentecost. Uh, I recently moved just a few blocks down on the hill, and this week I've been very, very distracted trying to learn how to decorate my new place. Uh, one idea I recently had was to kind of kind of uh, implement a world traveler uh, discovery theme, and so my idea was to to go on this website I found called Etsy and order this uh, this globe and and other artifacts and hammer them to the wall. And I shared my idea with several people, and they shot it down pretty fast. They hated it, so I'm back to square one. With all that said, what I do want to do this morning is live out that dream as we travel to one of the most exciting scenes here in the Bible. And like a a good museum tour guide or a docent, I want to guide us through this amazing living scene that speaks to us this morning in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Now, in the Bible, there are a lot of scenes that you would likely not want to find yourself in, scenes that would be hard to witness. Uh, For instance, watching the struggles of the Hebrews under the oppression of ancient Egypt, or perhaps watching the world flood in Noah's day, or even maybe being caught up in the mob against the apostles. Those would be difficult scenes to be in, but today's scene is just the opposite. It's the famous scene of Pentecost where God comes in power. Where, this, where the fullness of the Spirit comes in power. It's the scene where God's people are rebooted and relaunched and retasked. They're now equipped and they're empowered to go and live out the mission of God and their local communities and even to the whole world. And what we'll see today is that if we find ourselves in Christ in a real way this morning, we have access to that same fullness of the Spirit that same powerful spiritual life that God offers us through his spirit. And if we find ourselves, what we'll discover this morning, if we find ourselves having faith in Jesus Christ this morning, we've entered into that same calling. We've entered into that same purpose of the early church that was rebooted, relaunched, and retasked with a purpose to accomplish God's mission, God's work of redemption, God's mercy to our communities or wherever he might have us. As the famous missionary Hudson Taylor said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And that's really the big idea of this morning. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And as the tour guide this morning, let's look at this living scene. The passage begins in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, just about 50 days ago, Jesus resurrected from the dead. It was an event that 
rocked people's lives and forever changed the world. For the next 40 days or so, Jesus was with his core leadership, his early followers, early Christians, teaching them, mentoring them, setting an example, teaching about the kingdom of God. And then about 10 days ago, as we heard last week, he ascends to heaven. And he tells the church to wait for the fullness of the Spirit to come. And then we get this scene where all these believers in Jesus, all these followers in Jesus are in a room together somewhere in Jerusalem. It's the day of Pentecost, which was a famous Jewish feast. They celebrated it once a year. Uh, they would pilgrim, pilgrimage to Jerusalem to give thanks to God, to worship God, to offer up to God. And the text says, verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The text goes on to say that there's all different types of Jews there from all different types of nationalities and different types of ethnicities. And when they hear this mighty, mighty rushing wind, they, they, it causes quite a, a bit of commotion. And they go over to see what's going on, and they hear in a miraculous way all these followers of Jesus speaking in their foreign language and their native tongue. The text says, verse 6, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And then verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with a new wine. Now, a great question we should ask ourselves is the same thing that this crowd was asking. What does this mean? And the answer is something we're going to keep coming back to in the book of Acts. And that's the reality that God was coming in the fullness and power of his spirit. Since Jesus had died and resurrected and come back to life and ascended to heaven, the time was now for a new covenant. And in that new covenant, there was now a new mission and there was a fullness of the spirit. And what we'll see is that the fullness of the spirit is the very thing that allows us to draw on God's supply to do God's work in God's way. And so this morning, I have three observations on this living scene that helps us to answer this question, what does this mean? What does the fullness of the Spirit mean? I think it means three things particularly, and they're going to be right up on the screen, and it's going to flow right from the text as we always do here at King's Church. Number one, outside power. We'll see that in Acts 1 and 2. Number two, inner wonder. We'll see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 3. And then number three, a universal message. Acts chapter 2, 4 through 13. First, let's look at outside power. Notice first, the, really the first miraculous thing that happens in this scene in verse 2 is that the whole house was filled with a mighty rushing wind, uh, maybe like the sound of a hurricane wind or a tornado wind. It was a, a howling sound. And the text says that this sound 
came from heaven. The point is, is that they experienced something coming from the outside of themselves. It wasn't just an inner emotional or psychological moment. It was something from outside of them. Now, this definitely puts us on a collision course with what our culture says about problems and solutions. This puts us on quite the collision course with what our culture says about our problems and the solution. Culture says that all of our problems are outside of ourselves and that the solutions are found on the inside of ourselves. Whereas Christianity says our main problems are from within ourselves and the main solutions are outside of ourselves. Watch most TV shows, look at the messaging out there. If you're honest about the assessment of what you're hearing, the message is you have the power within yourself to overcome all the problematic people and all the problematic circumstances around you. One lifelong therapist wrote in an op-ed that today there are 30% less people going to therapy than there were 15 years ago. She commented that people used to come and say, I need to understand myself and change. Now people primarily come in and say, my problems are because there are people out there who need to change. She said that one of her colleagues picked up on this shift and changed her pitch, her marketing scheme to from I treat depression and anxiety to are you having trouble with difficult people in your life? The point she makes is that we're now a culture almost in full where we automatically say, if I have a problem, it's not me, it's you. Now, I just want to point out that this is a hopeless mentality. If the majority of our problems hail from things outside of us, people and circumstances we can't control, that's going to be a very frustrating life. But if the problems are, as Jesus said, residing in us, coming from our hearts, then there's hope because God has the power to come into your life and to change you. The second thing we see about the fullness of the Spirit is that it has to do with an inner wonder. It has to do with an inner wonder. We see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 3. Notice really the second miraculous thing that happens in this Seen here is in verse 3, where tongues of fire appeared to them and divided and rested on each of them. Now, this is really big because any time in the Old Testament where God comes in his glory presence, where God comes in his special presence, he shows up in fire. When he's speaking to Abraham, he appears as a blazing torch. When he appears to Moses for the first time in the wilderness, he appears as a burning bush. When Ezekiel has visions of the glory of God, he sees fire all around him. That fire was usually fatal. It was intense. It was unbearable. But what's significant about this moment is that God's presence is now multiplied in every individual believer. Every believer, male, female, young, old, priestly, tax collector, woodworker, they're all now a burning bush. Now, a question we might ask ourselves is, this morning, what does this inner wonder feel like? What does the fullness of the Spirit feel like in our lives? 
Well, a clue we have is when Jesus is receiving the Spirit at his baptism, he hears a voice, and the voice says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Said another way, God says to Jesus when he receives the Spirit, You are my Son. I delight in you. I love you. I take pleasure in you. And then as we read on in the Bible, we see the very same love and pleasure of God is true of every believer that has the Spirit. In the book of Romans, we're told that the Spirit, when the Spirit comes into our lives, he bears witness to our spirits that we're children of God. The book of Galatians says when the Spirit comes into our hearts, he cries, Abba, Father. He, he calls out to God. In essence, the Spirit's job is to make God's love real to us. It's to make God's pleasure in us real to us. It's to take head knowledge and to turn it into a fiery reality in our hearts. This is exactly what Jesus says the Spirit will do in John 16, where he says the Spirit will take what he's told them and he'll make it known to them. A great famous illustration of this concept is of a father with a young son. And the father and the son are walking down a street and uh, the, all of a sudden, the, the father uh, swoops down and picks up his, his little son, and he hugs him, and he kisses him, and the son looks at him back and says, I love you, and the father looks at him and says, I love you, and uh, he puts the son down shortly after, and, and they continue to walk home. And the illustration points out that the son wasn't any more of the father's son when he was in his arms compared to when they were just walking down the street together. There's no objective or legal difference but subjectively experientially there's a major difference there's there's an experience of sonship there's an experience of the love of god there's an there's an existential feeling where the knowledge of god becomes real to the heart he feels a deep sense of his father's love in that moment the point is when this when the spirit comes in fullness in our lives, we will feel, we'll experience the fullness of God's pleasure in us, God's delight in us, forgiveness that stems from the cross of Christ applying to every nook and cranny of our lives, the grace of God permeating through our hearts. We will feel the Almighty's love, his mercy, his kindness, the fact that he will keep us that there is nothing in creation that could ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. They realize in that moment when we're filled with his spirit that God's promise to carry us through is true. We feel it. We see it. Now, just a little side point. On the outside, this inner wonder can actually be mistaken for something. The passage here says that some people thought they were drunk day drinking perhaps at 9 a.m. here in verse 13. Paul later on picks that up in the book of Ephesians and says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In the Bible, as you read through the pages of the Bible, it's very interesting that often the Spirit is connected to alcohol. And that's because there are similarities and there are some dissimilarities of the effects of the fullness of the Spirit and the effects of being totally drunk. 
It's primarily similar, and I'll just bear with me here for a second. It's primarily similar because the experience of the fullness of the Spirit in your life produces a happy fearlessness. Notice that they were talking about the gospel, these early disciples, and they had no fear. They didn't care what anybody thought of them. They were too happy to be afraid of the opinions of other people. And when people saw that, it reminded them of drunks because alcohol can temporarily take away your fears and concerns and it can make you temporarily happy. This is not a shot at alcohol at all. But it's also really important to point out that there are some dissimilarities. In fact, one major dissimilarity is how these things work. Alcohol is a depressant, which means that it doesn't necessarily depress you, but it depresses part of how your brain functions, which means the the reason that people are happy when they're drunk is because you're actually dumber in that moment. Uh, You're less aware of reality in that moment. And so the things that would perhaps bother you in that moment are no longer bothersome because you really can't think straight. Uh, Said another way, reality in that moment is more hidden from you. You're happy through temporary stupidity. Whereas with the Spirit, this is not how the Spirit works. Uh, The Spirit gives you joy because the Spirit brings reality more into focus. He gives you a clearer mind. He takes God's unconditional love for you. God's amazing forgiveness to you through the blood of the cross. God's kindness to you. God's patience with you. God's deep delight in you through Jesus Christ. He takes that and he makes that real in your life. And the result is our hearts are filled with joy. It fills us with a happy fearlessness about all that the gospel means in our lives. The third thing we see about the fullness of the Spirit is that it has to do with a universal message. And you really see this in verses 4 through the rest of this scene. Uh, Notice the, the third really miraculous thing that happens here is that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then in verse 11, this very diverse crowd, they hear these followers of Jesus speaking in foreign tongues, and, and they say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, a lot of people, when they see that word tongues, they automatically think, oh, that's Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism is a, is a Pentecostalism, Penteco- I can say that, Pentecostalism, Pent- I can't say it, is a branch of Christianity that has an emphasis on speaking in tongues or uh, an ecstatic angelic type language. My take on this particular passage uh, this morning is that this is a different type of tongues than we see in the rest of the book of Acts and even in the rest of the Bible. Here it has to do with foreign languages being miraculously spoken. Other places, as we'll see as we walk through the book of Acts, perhaps does have to do more with this ecstatic angelic type speech. We'll, we'll eventually get there. But the point I want to make is that when they experienced the fullness of the Spirit, the result wasn't that they were telling everybody how happy they were. They weren't just telling everybody how good they felt inside. They didn't keep the message to themselves. Verse 11, they tell the crowds the mighty works of God. 
In other words, they're talking about the gospel, the good news that God has split the sea open so that we can enter into the promised land, the good news that God has sent his son to die for us so that we can have a relationship with him forever. And some, they were filled with the gospel, a desire to make Jesus known, a desire to celebrate all of his works and his grace. You might say that their closeness to God resulted in a fierce outward desire to make Jesus Christ known. Now, what's particularly interesting in this passage is that the first time the gospel is ever preached, it's preached to a dozen different ethnicities, cultures, through dozens of different languages, all at the same time. It's preached all at once. That's really important because it shows that the gospel is a universal message. What I mean by that is God deliberately and intentionally made sure that from the start there was no language, ethnicity, or subculture that had the dominant monopoly on the gospel. No culture, no language got the pride of place in the Christian faith. It wasn't a Jewish message in Hebrew implying that you also had to become Hebrew. It it wasn't a, a Roman message in Greek or Latin implying that you had to become like the Romans. It was, and it still is, a message of hope. It was universal, true, and it was for everybody. And it honored and it renewed the beautiful cultural and ethnic diversity all over the world. Now, this is really, I just need to point this out, this is really, really, really revolutionary. It's different than anything else. Uh, Take Islam, for instance. Our, Our Muslim friends would say that the Quran cannot be translated. Basically, Allah speaks Arabic. If you want to read the true revelation of God, you have to read it in Arabic. And historically, wherever Islam became dominant in the world, those particular cultures and customs began to be unified with other Islamic cultures, languages, customs, norms, and even government. But in Christianity, because of Pentecost, it's totally different. Christians believe the word of God can be translated. If you have the word of God in Chinese, it's the word of God. If you have the word of God in English, it's the word of God. And because of Pentecost, Christianity is free to be the most culturally diverse faith in the whole world. In other words, when Christianity is truly embraced, it doesn't seek to level or flatten someone's culture or language by unifying it to a dominant subculture or language. In other words, Pentecost shows us that God says there is no dominant language, there is no dominant culture, there is no dominant subculture. That means if someone from Africa, if they become a Christian, they don't become European. They become a Christian African. And if somebody comes to Christ from the Midwest, they don't become Southern. They become a Christian Midwesterner. The point I'm trying to make isn't factions, It's that the gospel doesn't seek to flatten culture. In a sense, it allows a person to stay in their culture. 
It allows them to see God's common grace, God's common goodness, and to enjoy the emphases and the norms, the foods, the customs, and the language of their particular culture. Which is why, if you travel the world, if you've been overseas, Christianity feels different in, say, a place like Ukraine compared to a place like the Dominican Republic. Their emotional expressiveness, their ways of making decisions, their different beliefs about time and punctuality, their different understandings of social power, their different understandings of how you argue and reason, their food tastes, their dress, their music, it's all very, very different. But real Christianity doesn't flatten those things. It honors those things. It renews those things. And it loves those things. Now, in another sense, the gospel also critiques our cultures and our subcultures. It gives us a new primary identity as sons and daughters of God. It lifts us up. And it gives us perspective on where perhaps our subculture or our, our culture has gone astray, perhaps in generational problems or confused ethics or sin patterns that particular subcultures might fall into. For example, if an individual comes to faith in Christ and they stay in their culture, perhaps they might see that their culture has a built-in posture towards degrading women. Or perhaps they might see that their understanding of spirits and magic is partly misguided or that their laws are unjust. Christianity lifts them up. It gives them perspective. It empowers them to fight for just change and goodness in their culture. Not only does it do these things, but it gives an ultimate unity. And we'll see that as the book of Acts continues to unfold, unity is not found ultimately in our subcultures or even our language, but unity as Christians is around a new primary identity where we're Christians first, where we're sons and daughters of God through the blood of Christ first and foremost, where we're united as brothers and sisters in Christ, being forgiven and loved and welcomed by the mercy of God, participating in the same ultimate mission, the same ultimate purpose in life, all while being united in diversity. This is what made the church so powerful. They had this, this universal message that also brought wonderful unity in diversity. As we come to the end of our, our little uh, tour here this morning, this scene is a wonderful picture of how God rebooted, how he retasked, how he relaunched the church, and he does this by pouring out his spirit, outer power, inner wonder, a universal message, the ability to do God's work in God's way and never lack God's good supply comes from the fact that God has come in his spirit to give us all the resources we need in him to do his kind of work in his kind of way on his time. I want to end with a, a bit of a challenging question, a bit of a, a takeaway thought today, and here's how I would pose it. Do you know what it means to be part of a church? Do you know what it means to be part of a congregation? With the Bible, I want to say that the church is not an event. It's not a production or a social club. The church is a people. 
It's a family. And the church has a purpose. And as a family of faith, we have been richly united into the purpose of God, into the work of God here in Washington. We have a great mission to show people that their guilt and shame can be atoned for fully through the blood of Jesus Christ, that a relationship with him can transform the heart. We have the real opportunity to help people to see how their faith in God can connect to their work, can connect their purpose to a bigger purpose than themselves. We have the power to be able to show how the barriers can come down between subcultures and how as a human race, our hearts can be healed through Jesus Christ. If it's been a while since you've felt that existential love of God, his arms around you, his mercy flowing through your heart, I want to encourage you that he's there. God is not an equation. Reach out to him. Seek his face. Seek his power. Seek his fullness. If you know him, his spirit dwells in you forever. But as the Apostle Paul says, seek more of him. That more of Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Here at King's Church, we need you. If you find yourself being a member here at this church, we need you to truly feel the presence of God in your life, to feel the mercy of God, to feel the grace of God, to feel the love of God flowing through your veins, animating your heart. We need you to feel his mercy, his presence, so that you would be all that he's called you to be in this family, all that he's called you to be in this world, all that he's called you to be here in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church D.C. podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.